Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We tell everyone, meet your 10,000 steps a day. Get 150 minutes of activity every week. Some people aren't like getting half of that, mm. so you have to set people individual targets. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, where we discuss the intersection of nutrition, lifestyle, and well-being. Today, I've got a good friend of mine, Dr. Hazel Wallace, who's founder of The Food Medic. She's a medical doctor, best-selling author, and health writer. She's also a qualified personal trainer. She's currently doing a master's in clinical nutrition and public health at UCL. She also started her own blog, The Food Medic, back in 2012. So we're talking seven years ago now, while she was at medical school in a bid to bring the gap between conventional medical advice and the latest thoughts and developments in nutrition and other areas of lifestyle medicine as well. She's also host of her own podcast, The Food Medic Podcast, and a really good friend of mine, so I cannot wait to get into this discussion about how we can eat to improve public health in general. Her master's has allowed her to dive into different topics around public health in general, and so I'm fascinated into finding out a bit more about the direction that she's going in and what kind of things we can do to improve the burden currently on our healthcare systems. You can follow her at The Food Medic on all social media platforms. I'll link to those in the show notes. Make sure you check out her books as well on Amazon and all good bookstores. And make sure you pre-order a copy of my book, Eat to Be Illness, The Doctor's Kitchen. It's my new book where I discuss all elements of nutrition, lifestyle, and how that intersects with improving your brain health, skin health, immunity, supporting skin function, supporting your heart, and a whole bunch of other topics. You're going to find the recipes absolutely delicious, so make sure you click on pre-order and check it out. Now to the podcast. Hazel. Welcome hi. to the pod. <laughs> hi, hi. <laughs> we're starting. I know, finally made it on the podcast. I know, yeah, it's good to see you. Thank you, it's good to be here. This is the first time I've seen you this year, actually. We're like um, a couple of weeks yeah, into the new year. Yeah, absolutely. I haven't seen you in ages. I know, it's been it's been wild. I think the last time I saw you was at your conference. Yes. So tell me about the, tell, I mean, you've already done a special episode on your own podcast, yeah. the Food Medical Podcast, a podcast about that, which everyone should definitely listen to. Um, but yeah, get, give us some some feedback on on what the reaction to it yeah. was. I, I had a great time. So I hosted a, podca- a podcast. <laughs> a podcast <laughs> I, there as well, but yeah. yeah. I hosted a conference um, titled The Future of Food. And um, really this came about because I wanted to... I was thinking about hosting a food medic branded event, but I wanted it to be hosted by scientists for the non-scientist. So I got people like yourself, experts in the field of medicine and nutrition to basically share evidence-based advice on lifestyle measures, particularly looking towards um, food and sustainability. Obviously, that's a huge topic at the moment. 
So um, it was really exciting. We had uh, 400 people come through the doors and the tickets sold out like in six hours, yeah. which is ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, the, I can't thank the speakers enough. So we had four stages running at once, which was a bit mental. But we had people like yourself. We had um, like Dr. Sandra DeMeo, who I know that you're going to be having on the podcast. Yeah, he's a great connection. And, and thank you so much for that, because he's just, I mean, we're probably going to end up talking about yeah. some of the work that you're doing with him and some of his work with Eat. But yeah, no, he's a fantastic speaker. He's really, really good, really engaging. Um, lots of our friends um, speaking at the event as well. Um, and a couple of chefs also talking about how we can implement some of the advice that we are getting from kind of national guidelines and the science um, it kind of onto our plates, like essentially how yeah. we go about it. And you you guys, you and the culinary medicine team did some um, cookery demos there, which was great. So overall, it was such positive feedback. I definitely want to do it again. But um one of the things that's happened since then is going back to uni, yeah. um, which yeah. you have as well. So it's just finding the time. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's funny because the first time we met was like uh, for three years ago now? Three, probably about three years Four ago. Four years ago. Four years ago. I was in my final year. Wow. Okay. Four years ago in Sydney whilst yeah. you were doing your elective. Um, and we connected. And back then you had started the Food Medic and you, you had a, a clear mission there really to, you know, educate the, the public about nutrition and improve the conversations we're having. How has the food medic changed over that? You've been going for like uh, how long now? Seven years. Seven years. <laughs> Seven years. The food medic must have changed quite a bit from when you started it and what you aspired to do when you when you first started to what it is now. So I'm really interested in how you because I've I've watched you mm. like along this journey along the latter part of your journey. But uh, yeah, how how has how has it changed? Yeah, so it really has changed. And if I'm completely honest, it started from quite a selfish place not selfish in a bad way but selfish in in the fact that it came from a place where I wanted to improve my own health and I had just finished or is coming to the end of my first degree in medical sciences and like as the story goes had put on weight and was like living a very fast food lifestyle and also not moving very much and I thought I was like you know, going from my med school interviews, hoping to do postgraduate medicine and thinking, you know, if I'm going to be a doctor, I want to be able to like live and breathe what I'm preaching to my patients. So I like joined a gym and started cooking from scratch and, and started an Instagram account. And this was when Instagram wasn't really a cool thing then or it was very up and coming and just started tracking my progress. But really, I wanted to understand from my own point of view what would be the best diet for me and thought the best way to find that out would be um, in the scientific literature. Um, and what I soon realised is there was a huge disconnect between what they were saying in papers and what I was reading in magazines and online blogs and things. And I was like, oh my God, like, because I was falling for things like Slimming World and all of these things that we should and shouldn't do that, you know, magazines that were pitched to women were telling us. So I decided to translate kind of the science and start a blog then, an extension of my Instagram. And that's when the food medic was born. So I started that in my very first year of med school, um, 2012 now. Um, and then continued that on. So when I met you and I was in my final year, I was writing my first book, The Food Medic. And then I moved to London and started working as a doctor. Um, and yeah, I've, I'm still doing The Food Medic today, but it's definitely 
not about me anymore yeah. and it's about we and what I can do from a public health perspective. I love how you just brushed over the fact that whilst you were doing your junior doctoring years, which is for some people, some of the hardest years that you do, certainly for me when I did my F1, F2 year, they were the hardest two years, you published a book and I know what that is like and that whole experience of having to do the promotion, having to do all the articles, mm. having to speak to the press and all that kind of stuff. Whilst being a junior doctor, I mean, that that's pretty impressive, Hazel. It was... In hindsight, I'm like, how did I do that? <laughs> yeah. And to be honest with you, the the month after publication, I got strep throat, and then I got like a gastrointestinal infection from being I on antibiotics. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And ended up having three weeks completely off work and bed bend, and that was a really tough lesson mm. to myself that you a can't do everything, and also I need to also think about my own health when mm. I'm thinking about other people's health. Definitely. Um, but yeah, it, it, like, you know, we got through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now you've gone back to university. Yeah. Uh, as I have done as well. But yeah. um, tell us about what you're doing, where you're doing it, and what actually prompted that move? Yeah, so I am doing a full-time master's in nutrition, clinical nutrition and public health is the full title at UCL. And UCLH is the hospital that I tend to work at, so it's all part of the one um kind of family which is quite nice um same area and things like that but I took a year out of training um after my foundation year my first foundation year and locumed for that year and also wrote my second book and I was going to go back to full-time training or part-time training and I decided that if I was going to take a career gap and study masters which is something that I wanted to do for a long time now was the best time to do it when I didn't have kids I you know didn't have any other commitments apart from myself or responsibilities and I decided to just do it all in one year so that's why I've gone back I'm still locoming um also still doing the food medic and just trying to do a bit of everything but my main focus is the masters yeah so tell us a bit more about the public health uh, side of things because there's there's lots of different masters that are available there yeah. this one seems particularly unique because you're getting really uh, a perspective on the clinical nutrition side of things but also looking at the broader picture as well which from the sounds of things is the way you're going with the food medic you're really looking to answer those big questions about what challenges there are for overall health population yeah. health and and what's burdening our healthcare systems yeah it's um it's interesting because it it is very different it's very different looking at individual nutritional advice and then like public health messaging and also looking at evidence from that point of view and i think so like you said there is lots of different masters that you can do and getting a nutritional masters is probably the most robust after a bachelor's degree to uh Give you give yourself a qualification in nutrition. Um, so this one is focusing on public health. There's another arm to the masters where you can do eating disorders, which one of our friends Laura uh, mm. Thomas is doing. But I decided that public health was more um, my interest and what I want. What I basically want to get my knowledge in, and essentially. The reason that it's different is that we don't just learn the kind of nuances and physiology and, um, you know, specific like nutrient deficiencies and things like that that you'd learn from from another nutritional masters. But you also look at the other um, factors that come into play. So when it comes to nutrition, for example, we also need to consider other factors like socioeconomic status we need to consider environment we need to consider genetics everything that would kind of 
it all fits into the one puzzle when it comes to creation and nutritional guidelines, but it might not be at the forefront of everyone's mind. And it's been so insightful for me yeah. because I feel like, I almost feel like I know nothing now <laughs> because I'm just like, wow, my mind is so open and I'm learning so much, but I think it will only make me a better clinician and advisor by the end of this. So that's why... It's such a frustrating paradox, though, isn't it? The more you learn, the less you feel, the less you understand, and the more you know that there is to know. There's just like an infinite number of of papers that you need to read or conferences that you need to attend. I I mean, the the masters that I'm doing can be quite in-depth on one particular micronutrient. So we have a professor, Professor Margaret Raymond, she won't mind me mentioning her, um, who specifically goes in on in iodine and selenium? Mm. Uh, in fact, she actually uh, lectured at the um, the College of Medicine uh, conference that we went to a couple of years ago, purely on iodine and why dairy was a very important source of iodine. Oh, yes, yeah. I remember her. She's a feisty Irish yeah. lady. You guys would definitely get on. <laughs> I should definitely put you guys in contact. Um, but yeah, no, like she'll just go hard on selenium, and we'll just be talking about all the different sorts of sources of selenium. Why, where you source your food sources can vary widely she's very anti-brazil nuts for that reason really? yeah because two to three um single not even portions two to three single brazil nuts can give you a very a toxic dose of selenium yeah depending on where you've sourced it so if it's grown in china for example their soils have a higher level of selenium than average or much higher than average so that's concentrated in the nut itself mm. and that's why you've got to be careful about the number of brazil nuts you have per day but also per week as well yeah. so and she's fanatical about that kind of stuff it's kind of stuff like that that i wouldn't even have thought about no. to be honest. yeah um but yeah I, I can't remember where i was going with this but that but that sort of um uh, that that nuance to this topic kind of gives me an understanding of why public health initiatives why public health uh, plates and stuff like that are so difficult mm. to actually formulate because there's so much evidence out that you need to consider well absolutely and i think we as like as doctors and also nutritional professionals, well, less so than nutritionists, can sometimes like um, nitpick and like pick apart nutritional guidelines, particularly public health messaging. When I now really kind of look at it through a different lens and think, wow, like they're actually, those guidelines are created in a way they're so they're probably oversimplified but they're created so that they help the people who need them the most they may not apply to everyone but they're trying to make them so they apply to most people and that's why they use like really basic messaging and sometimes people don't agree with them because Mm. it may be like you know they'll use certain rules or um certain like slogans so Mm. that like kids and families remember them but we have to think about who they're targeted for and I have like I had so many good discussions with Dr Zoe Williams um, a mutual friend of ours about this and I think understanding that is something that we all need to do yeah I Um, think it's quite easy to criticise actually because unfortunately they are in a rock and a hard place I mean mm. I had a patient just this week actually who has intractable dental pain from decayed teeth he's actually been referred on to specialist services he's on like very high doses of opiate medications, some neuropathic medications as well. Um, 
someone has spoken to him about diet and how this has an impact on dental mm. uh, care and, and dental health. Um, but obviously, the messaging of even things like the Eat Well plate have been lost on this person because I asked him about his diet and he's um, using white bread and because he can't chew, he's literally mushing up in the front of his of his mouth and then eating it and then washing it down with a McDonald's milkshake. Mm. And he's been told to go on a low sugar diet. But in his mind, sugar is literally the granulated stuff. Mm. And it's not in things, because you can't see the granules, therefore, ergo, there's no sugar in it. So it's actually that type of patient that we really need to be thinking about Mm. because the over-complicated messages of, uh, you know, uh, eat healthy greens, eat local, eat seasonally, organic. I mean, these don't apply to the majority of the population, unfortunately. No, no. They, they're they not, you know, thinking about, like, where they're sourcing their food or they probably don't know concepts like what legumes are. You need to break things down. And also, one thing that you talk about a lot is meeting the patient where they're at. And mm. if that patient drinks, you know, two litres of Coke a day and you can get them onto Diet Coke just for the meantime before getting them onto water, then that's a win. Absolutely. You know what? That's actually something that we talk about in culinary medicine. So um, when we were teaching at Bristol Medical School, they had health clinics where they actually went and met patients and they got that first-hand experience of what it's like to actually, A, take a diet history and B, make just simple suggestions as what they can do. Mm. And so even though a lot of people will be horrified to hear that <laughs> we're recommending Diet Coke instead of full fat Coke, that for a lot of people is a massive step. It's yeah. a huge step in the right direction. And even though I have reservations about Diet Coke and diet uh, diet beverages in general, yeah. you know, it is, a, it is a stepping stone towards a healthier lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. So you have to... You really do have to meet the patient where they're at. And if you go in with all of your ammunition and ask them to strip all the fizzy drinks from their diet and mm. to go largely plant-based overnight and get rid of everything, are they going to stick to it? Exactly. Or can yeah. you meet them every week and or every couple of weeks have a follow-up and try to meet them with different kind of targets all the time? And I do the same when it comes to physical activity. And yeah. it's like... We tell everyone, meet your 10,000 steps a day, get 150 minutes of activity every week. Some people aren't like getting half of that. Mm. So you have to set people individual targets. Yeah, definitely. And give them a little hacks. I mean, for that patient that in question, just because I know I'm going to get asked about it, what I recommended to him actually <laughs> uh, for dinner because he can't chew is um, can of butter beans, veg stock, blend it with a stick blender and and warm it up in a saucepan and make yourself a soup essentially you're getting legumes in there you're getting a good source of protein and fiber you're getting a bit of flavor from the veg stock and you add some spices to it as well he loved that suggestion yeah yeah i'm I'm gonna see him in a couple of weeks but like uh, yeah but it's you know it's just those simple little hacks that people need to be more aware of Mm. um and this is why i think it's quite interesting when translating that into public health policy yeah so I'd be fascinated to find out what your ideas are with regards to public health and where you think the biggest challenges are and what direction you think we should be we should be going in. I think we, you know, like I just said, it's, it's a broad question. It's a broad question. <laughs> yeah, and when it comes to improving health from a nutritional standpoint, like I said, there's so many different moving parts that we need to be thinking of and different kind of um, factors that come into play. So deciding what's the best components of nutritional guidelines is one part. And 
the kind of eat well plate that we have here I think will change over the next couple of years and we'll see it going towards more um, sustainable kind of food groups and practices and things like that and Obviously, I don't know if you've spoken about it already, but the Eat Lancet report that came out last week that was essentially giving us targets and what we need to look for from a human health perspective, but also planetary health perspective, i.e. what do we need to do to save our own health and the health of the planet? Mm. And that really, I mean, it's very strict. It's, you know, suggesting that we cut down our red meat consumption massively to uh, like one portion a week mm. where previously we were told oh just do one meat free day a week where mm. now it's just have one meat day a week yeah. that's very drastic for a lot of people and um, particularly in the UK where we eat a lot of meat but I think if we can take some components of that yeah. and be a bit more mindful so shifting people towards putting as much plant-based foods on the plate and I know you talk about this mm. by default shifts the amount of red meat and dairy meat and dairy and processed meat that we have on our plate mm-hmm. but also ensures that we're getting enough fiber in there and micronutrients and things like that so food is one part and actually from doing this masters I don't think it's the biggest part it's how do we actually get that onto someone's plate what needs to happen Mm. so we can tell people the advice but their environment needs to allow for that so we both know that we don't live in an environment Mm. that promotes health we live in an environment that promotes disease and by that I mean that we have public transport everywhere we've got you know Uber's swipe of our finger we have Deliveroo at the swipe of our finger Um, it's very easy to get nutrient like uh, energy dense but nutrient poor food than it is to get the opposite so there's things that are happening within the public health sphere to help um, create healthier environments and you know that was outlined largely in the obesity kind of action plan Um, so things like reformulation of foods Mm. um, taxation of sugar sweetened beverages also advertisement of foods to kids we need to like start thinking about these kind of things this Uh, environment that they've coined uh an obesogenic environment um is is quite fascinating actually because if you look at the data looking at the number of takeaways for example over the last 10 years it's gone up by a third that's that's okay from like a not okay that's not okay Mm -hmm. uh that's um it's quite shocking from uh, a broad perspective perspective actually when you go into the details you'll notice that in areas where there is social deprivation there's low socioeconomic status even though i don't like that term that goes up even more so than in the areas of london in particular where there is a more affluent population so that shows that if you are in a poor environment you are at a massive disadvantage for having a healthier lifestyle and therefore you're going to be more of a burden so actually it's the fault of the environment as well as the individual not just you know we can't just put all the blame on one person or one thing but it's i think that's absolutely fascinating that we're actually we're witnessing these different these inconsistencies and these differences in people's health based on their environment yeah absolutely so i think you know it's not going to be one thing that will fix um, like the kind of burden of double burden of malnutrition that we're experiencing, not just in the UK, but across the world. It will be all of these facets and it's going to be a grassroots level, but also a top down approach from from the government and having like, you know, leaders in that space who are 
confident to speak up and actually put nutrition and things like improving the environment at the top of the agenda. So there's like interesting things that we can actually use to nudge people um, in the right direction. And um, like by nudge, I mean, um, so using advertisement, for example, Mm. instead of promoting um, at the checkout, having, you know, price promotion on foods that are high fat, high sugar Mm. and salt, having foods that are healthier on promotion and things like that. Or can we advertise um, healthier foods to kids in a way that's engaging for them? So now we know that, you know, chili is a good example on their cereal boxes. They've removed all of the cartoons from the front packet. So now companies that are cereal companies can only kind of, they can use like colours and stuff like that but they can't use cartoon characters but could we use those cartoon characters on foods that are nutritious and get kids engaged in that way so why don't we use the knowledge that we know that the industry's been using and improve people's health that way it's it's quite interesting isn't it I I mean I don't know what the right answer is and that's why I think it's fascinating to have this discussion because we're almost going in the same direction as smoking was about 30 years ago where Mm -hmm. they were bit by bit told to reduce the uh, sort of nudges toward their product, their the sexy advertising, the aspirational Marlboro Man figures, for example, and then changing ultimately the boxes to promote actually what smoking will do to you and hiding them in 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 totality. I mean, I don't believe we need to go down that way, that extreme at this point. But it's interesting to see the similarities between what we're seeing in public health uh, and government top-down approaches with what's happened in the past. Yeah, it's interesting. We actually um, had a discussion where we had a tutorial yesterday in university and they were discussing nudges. Um, And one of the kind of experiments that they did was when you go on to online shopping and say you type in butter, for example, and all of the searches for butter come up. But what they did is they put all of the low fat butters um, as kind of the top searches. And they found that there was a 66% increase in the amount of low fat butters that people bought. So then in terms of the reduction in saturated fat consumed or that they assumed were consumed, had dropped like significantly from that one kind of project. And it's just interesting because we do that. I mean, supermarkets do that anyway. They will put um, whatever's on offer or whatever they want to push out at the top of your search. So then, you know, most of us will just go to the first page and we're like, that'll do, I'll pick that one. But if we kind of put all of the healthy stuff in people's faces, it's not forcing them to buy it. Yeah. We're giving people the option and letting people know that there are other options, Mm. you know. It doesn't have to be just this or just that. And I think it's putting autonomy back in people's hands, which we've really lost. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost like we're entering this kind of murky field between what is the the, uh, the corporation's responsibility, their social Mm. responsibility to do in the actions of public health? Is it to do just that at the top of your ACADA list or whatever, promote the low-fat or healthier options uh, or the the ones that are more wholesome in terms of um, the the ingredients rather than the others, even if that means that they're making a loss? So Mm. it's kind of like this 
Uh, and I don't know, again, I don't know what the answer is and I don't yeah. know whose responsibility it is. Is it the governments? Is it uh, the corporations themselves or is it the individuals? I think it's going to be a mix, an interplay of, of all three, to be honest. Yeah. If I, I was at this um, uh, non-parliamentary uh, think tank on Monday. Um, Dame Sally Davies was there, who's a public health uh, chief and um, a couple other uh, pretty influential people in the audience as well. Yeah. And we're all having a discussion about actually whose responsibility. And I was just looking through the brochure of the number of attendees and they literally spanned everything from NICE to uh, digital tech to uh, Tesco's representatives, the media and governmental uh, responsibility as well. So it's interesting to see how many people, how many stakeholders there are in this discussion. Because yeah. whilst I and we like to think of the individual, the patient, uh, as the primary focus and the overall health of the population, actually it impacts economies, it impacts um, uh, our environment, mm. it has an impact on welfare um, and uh, politics as well. Uh, you know, it, it's it's very, very interesting uh, yeah. to see. And it's, it's a fascinating space to observe as well as be part of as well. Yeah, I think it can also be almost um, overwhelming and you can coming into this space when I was still at medical school I was so enthusiastic probably when we both met in Sydney and thought that you know oh my god I've got the solution I've got the cure for non-communicable diseases and it's food and it's not it's part of it Mm. but it's not the whole picture I think What's really a really nice message, though, and one thing that Sandra always kind of has rephrased to me is, yeah, well, food may be part of the problem, but it's also a big part of the solution. So like we said earlier, discussing ways that we can actually hack the system and and use food to promote health. Yeah, exactly. Is is also a nice way of looking at things. Definitely, yeah. And uh, just on that note, actually, the the food and the quality of food and how that impacts uh, our environment is something that has come out over the last couple of weeks with the Eat Lancet. Tell us about your involvement in that because I'm absolutely fascinated yeah. and I cannot wait for this podcast to come out. What's the name of the podcast? Um, Let's Rethink Food. Let's Rethink Food, yeah. okay. Um, right. So the Eat Lancet report basically... Um, 37 scientists have been working on this for the past three years. And I mean, like, scientists who are leading in their field, like, including Prof. Prof. Will- yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, go on. What were you saying? <laughs> Prof. Prof Willett, who is, oh, okay. like, you know, the top epidemiologist in the world. Yeah. But, you know, lots of big stakeholders within the UK. And also, what I really loved is that all of the scientists on the report are from all different parts of the world. So we're not just looking at Western countries, we're looking at countries that are also low and middle income, which is really important, I Mm. think, because then we're getting inputs and experiences from every part of the world. And the reason that they wanted to do this report is because as you know, um, you know, there's this kind of double burden of malnutrition occurring across the world. And what we mean by double burden is that we're experiencing overweight and obesity happening in parallel to micronutrient deficiencies and stunting. And some of this is happening not just at like a country level or community level, but within the same household and sometimes within the same individual because of our diets, but also our environments. And this used to be a problem of the Western world, but now it's happening, you know, in developing countries. And so the report essentially set out what 
what do we need to eat in order to improve our own health, but also ensure that we've got enough food and we kind of protect the planet by 2050. And so they set out to design this diet, but it's not just looking at diet. It's looking how we source food. It's looking at agriculture um, and all of the components that come into the picture. But the planetary diet that they've essentially outlined is largely plant-based, similar to the Mediterranean diet, I guess, but Mm. it's very, very low in um, red meat, like we mentioned earlier, Mm. um, about one portion per week, relatively low in fish, but not massively. I think it's 28 grams per day, which works out about two servings per week, which is what we're recommended here anyway. And then, uh, you know, small portions of poultry as well and dairy, but largely focusing on getting most of our sources from plant based foods. Mm. And essentially, this die came out as a blueprint. You know, it's not been implemented in, in any guidelines. It's a global report, but it's been received where, you know, everyone's pretty positive about it. And it's also something that. I guess governments can look towards in terms mm. of shaping guidelines and hopefully using um, as a bit of a target because we're not heading in the right direction. We're not meeting the targets that we've we've set out to meet. You know, we're massively overfishing. Mm. We're massively like destroying the land that we've got left. So we need to figure out with the land that we do have left, how mm. can we make more food? And so the I know I've been working with the Eat, um, the EAT group who are part of the Eat Lancet Commission for about a year now and they asked me to come on board to help disseminate the information in a way that is understandable for everyone else because there's no point creating a report like this yeah. and just lots of clever scientists speaking to one another about <laughs> yeah. how great they are yeah, and yeah. clapping each other in the back so <laughs> I went in to ask the annoying questions yeah. what does this mean because a lot of it is new to me a lot yeah. of it I didn't understand and if I'm someone who has a background in science and reads a lot of this research anyway then how are we going to expect people to implement it into their own um, diets but it's interesting because speaking to yourself and also other professionals within the space it's been um, everyone's been really positive about it mm. and it, we're probably following that diet anyway or yeah. you know it would be quite easy for us but on the day it came out, I was speaking on BBC Radio Scotland about it and I was hosting a, a surgery. So I was taking questions from um, just the general public calling in and one gentleman called in and he was outraged by really? this. Um, yeah, because it was so far from his diet. Wow. And actually, it really was an important um, realisation for me yeah. because I was like, it is actually all well and good us being like eat more plants and get rid of your meat and eat 10 a day yeah, and some yeah. people are really struggling to get three a day yeah. and actually having a burger on the way home from work is what they normally do and they don't know how to cook and they don't know what a chickpea is so <laughs> it's really important that we re- we remember that we have to treat everyone the same and yes the kids of Instagram know they're probably yeah, all eating exactly. that way yeah, 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 so totally. that is essentially what it is in a nutshell yeah that, I think that's really important to, to recognise actually the majority of people who would have read that because it was shared thousands of times across the world so everyone's mm. probably heard of the plantry diet and wicked name as well <laughs> it's such a cool name like oh how do you eat I'm flexitarian how do you eat I eat for the planet man <laughs> yeah um, but no I, I think it, for the average 
person in the UK who eats like a good number of portions of animal protein per week because they've been told, you know, poultry is good for you, fish is good for you. You know, these are all messages that have come out from corporations, but also from um, uh, healthcare services as well, that, you know, having good amounts of protein in your diet is meant to be a good thing. Mm. And now being told, actually, you know what, if you're going to try and protect the environment, if you're trying to protect your health, you need to ditch all uh, animal products bar a few and really, really changing the picture of what your plate looks like every day. And like you said, a lot of people don't don't know what to do with chickpeas. I'm probably guilty of saying the word legumes far too many times <laughs> as well on like social media and stuff. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And a lot of people go back to, well, historically we, you know, we were hunter-gatherers and we ate a lot of meat. Actually, we didn't. We probably you know, killed a goat or a sheep and had that for a, a couple of weeks yeah. and ate from that. We didn't eat, you know, a big steak every night. Yeah. And it's about rethinking how we look at food and we live in an environment where, you know, it's very, um, especially here, that you know, it's very affluent from a food perspective that you can have a big steak or a big burger whenever you want. But we need to think about our health and particularly and I don't want to demonize any foods and I definitely try not to do that within my own diet but mm. when it comes to our health as well processed meats and red meats there is a strong correlation there when it comes to specific diseases especially colorectal cancer mm. and that evidence is relatively robust so we have to respect that and if people are interested in protecting their health it's in their interest to reduce it. But that's not saying that you can't have a burger every yeah. once in a while. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I find the whole experiment that we're sort of undertaking over the next couple of years where we try and change behaviours really one as much of, of physical health but one of psychological health as well. Yeah. Because once you've given something or given someone the availability of having salmon, steak or, or anything at the click of your fingers at a very good price point, like you'll find in supermarkets up and down the country, and then turn around and say but you can't have that and you shouldn't have that and you know the psychology the psychological impact of that I think is massive for a lot of people just not interested in this in, whatsoever yeah absolutely and I think so it's January and I'm currently doing Veganuary, veganuary yeah how's that going so yeah that's what I just got, was going to bring up because I would think I thought last year I wasn't in the position to do it I didn't feel like like you said that I was ready to do it and mm. it is a big undertaking um but i eat a largely plant-based diet anyway my biggest kind of non-plant-based foods would be cheese and eggs <laughs> yeah and i was like it's a month i can do it and also when i'm advising people who are vegan it's really important for me to understand the limitations and obstacles that they, they come up against Definitely. so i wanted to do it as a challenge and i'm still doing it but I've definitely run into problems. So not problems, but difficulties. And when I'm definitely missing my cheese, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also doing dry January. So it's a very, very sobering month for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but last week I traveled to um, Ireland, uh -huh. where I'm from. But I traveled to a part of... Oh, really? Of I did I couldn't tell. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I traveled to a part of Ireland that's uh, quite rural for an event. Um and trying to get even a vegetarian <laughs> yeah. meal was so hard. Yeah. Like, I really, really struggled. And I just thought, we have it so lucky here in London. Mm. You know, like, we are so privileged. Yeah. But expecting people to go plant-based for it to be tasty and accessible across the world... Yeah. 
is a big ask. Yeah, totally. So we need to be able to implement, like, give people actual tools. And I think, like you just said, the advice that you gave to your patient, that's one example of how mm. we can translate what it says in that guideline into real life practice. Absolutely, yeah. I went... Um, I, I completely resonate with the whole vegan thing because uh, I was doing a talk back in 2016 at Vivolution. I'm not oh, yeah, sure yeah. if it's still good. I think it must be I still going. It still is, it's probably yeah. like thriving massively. Um, <laughs> so I was giving a talk there and I thought in preparation for the talk, I'm going to go vegan for a month and just see as a social experiment just how hard it is. And obviously living in London, we're a massive privilege, but I found it fairly... Um, it was definitely an eye-opening experience for me just to know how many things have cheese on. Like every salad you get has got feta or parmesan on it or something. Or somewhere someone slipped in milk into uh, oh the ingredients God, yeah. list and everything. So it can be really tough. Even in um, like a like curry paste, they yes. put like shrimp in it. Yes, they do. And yeah. I didn't realise this. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't use it, but someone flagged it to me, and yeah. I was like, oh, "I know that you probably make your own curry paste." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're no, like, oh, say well, that. that's not a problem Last with me. night, I used a yellow curry paste on purpose. I faked it, and I was very honest about it because sometimes, you know, you don't have the mental energy or like, you know, the whole you've got to get lemongrass and galanga and shallots and stuff. You know, just get a paste, and sometimes, yeah. you know, every now and then that's fine. But if you are doing veganuary, then you've got to make sure. Yeah, you so it's little things like that. I've like or you know I visited uh, you know a family friend and was given a cup of tea and they just instantly put, put cow's milk in exactly. it I'm not going to be like take that back Bridget I'm not drinking it <laughs> so you just I think we all I mean I'm not I'm I know that I'm not going to go completely vegan just yet I'm not never say never mm. um but it's been it's been really good as well because I've learned to be more experimental with my plant based eating and I definitely think moving forward I probably will be largely um plant based and, and veggie. I mean, I don't really miss red meat anymore. Yeah. But you know, three years ago I would have probably had red meat twice a week or three times a week. Yeah. Some people yeah. have it every night. So I think we need to be very measured when we're giving this advice and tell people you know you don't have to do this overnight and please yeah, don't because yeah. you'll probably run yourself into problems absolutely actually you know what that was uh, some of the feedback I got of my first book people would l literally like bought the book and would want to do every single recipe every single night and obviously my recipes have like loads of legumes chickpeas beans <laughs> that kind of stuff in so I had all these messages like uh, am I meant to be a little bit more bloated a bit more farty oh, with yeah. these recipes and like you probably if you just go hard at it like completely from day one oh, but you've got to ease your way into introducing more fire otherwise you're going to know about it and everyone else is going to know about it well. so. <laughs> it's so true I'm getting so many of those messages because it is Veganuary everyone's yeah. like oh my god I can't stop farting and I'm like <laughs> It's quite normal, but probably try to tone down the fiber and drink a lot of water. And yeah, you've got to think there. about it from the perspective of your microbes. They're probably like having a massive party. Like, wow, we've got all this fiber, <laughs> this variety. It's amazing. It's colorful and up in here and they're having a party. So, yeah, you just got to like ease your way into it. 100%. Yeah. So with regard to the rest of your public health masters and stuff, um, you've got like an, another like six months or so, seven months? Yeah, I've, I've handed my thesis in August. Okay. And have you got any idea of what you want to do with that knowledge because like it's a huge undertaking that you're doing like essays and exam you've got exams coming mm. up right yeah um where what kind of direction do you want to go in with public health now i it's crazy because 
six months ago, I don't think I would have said this, but I definitely want to go into public health policy. Um, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. I'm That's really, great. I we know. need more medics <laughs> who have got the experience to go into public health. That's great. Yeah. I, I'm really passionate about public health and um, particularly when it comes to helping to re- kind of reduce the amount of non-communicable diseases and in any way have an impact in any way try to shape policy to improve that and that I I really see that this is my vocation now Mm. um I definitely mourn the fact that I'm not in clinical practice full-time because I worked not only did I work my ass off to get into um, medicine in the first place but I really enjoy it like Mm. I love seeing patients all the time Mm. but I've come to the understanding that I can do more from this level. So if I can get into policy, I never thought I'd ever get into politics, but I've somehow found my way in there. Yeah. And I seem to have, when I talk to people, that's when I get my most, I get really passionate. So Mm. I think I just have to go with it. Yeah. And that's where I see it heading. I definitely want to work more um, within the media in disseminating information and I'll continue doing the food medic as an extension of of my like my own work um but yeah it's a it's definitely super interesting how it's come around this weird journey that I've been on yeah Yeah. no definitely I mean I echo that I never thought I'd be teaching medical students like knife skills and how to chop an onion and stuff like that and facilitating their conversations in clinic and trying to like elevate the conversation around around food and, and lifestyle in general and how that segues into conversations around, you know, stress at home and family life and food security and things like that. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's just quite interesting to see really like uh, our journeys individually and, and how they've meandered along the way. Yeah. Um, I kind of loathe the fact, I mean, I still do clinical medicine, but I, I, I like you, have taken a massive... Um, chunk out of my clinical work to focus on the doctor's kitchen the non-profit stuff with culinary medicine and um yeah it is a bit weird at the start but then you kind of realize you can actually have a massive impact on public health yeah by using your platform by using your resources and learning about this subject and that's what i was going to ask you actually about if you had uh an an area to focus on probably not just to focus on but with public health if you had a magic wand what kind of areas would you focus our attention on if you could actually you know um, improve aspects of public health which ones would you would you focus on I don't I think uh, public health messaging and communication um, I've been lucky enough to sit on a couple of um, kind of round tables with public health England Mm. recently and where I feel like I offer the most benefit is how can we engage uh, like millennials and young people because social media obviously plays a, p- a huge part and it's really important in how we the words that we use how we communicate things and it's that those um, kind of campaigns are not just healthy eating advice but also things like cervical screening mm. stopping smoking um, keeping antibiotics working things like that but yeah. they're all so important except they're not important if they fall on deaf ears and if we can't engage people then I don't think we're going to benefit anyone so I guess my work from uh, just looking at food has really expanded into all areas of public health which again I didn't expect and I didn't really think I had a passion for but it all fits in into the one like um, the one pot so I think I would definitely have a couple of suggestions when it comes to the advice that we give out from a healthy eating point of view 
I love to work on that and and shape that. So I think it, food will always be my my main passion, like public health nutrition, mm. but also the other areas of nutrition. I think being a medic allows me to um, kind of fully understand those issues there. Mm. And I mean, we've had really really successful campaigns when it's come to smoking. So like you said. Why can't we use that and take that forward with other things? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the action for obesity stuff. You, you've done like a lot of reading around that and, and stuff. Yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on that actually going forward? Do you think that's one of the solutions to the issues that we see burdening our healthcare service? Or do you think it's actually there's nuance to it and there's actually wider things or things that we're missing in terms of our messaging? Yeah, I think there's lots of things that we're missing in terms of our messaging. And, you know, there's a couple of um, people who are within um, the same field as us that are probably better at kind of articulating this, um, like the Girls of the Rooted Project. Mm. Um, But when it comes to the obesity action plan that was released um, last year, that is essentially focusing on childhood obesity. Um, And what we're seeing in terms of obesity rates, definitely there has been an increase from... um, the 1990s but that has slowed down in the past two years and actually we're not seeing massive increases but we are seeing increases in certain um, kind of childhood age groups and what we need to do I think in order to give our children and I'm not a mother just for full disclosure (laughs) there because I know that some people bring that up but what we need to do is give them the best opportunity for a healthy life Mm. and in order to do that you know they don't have full control over what they have for their dinner or what's in their lunchbox Mm. but we can help create an environment so that they do have the options and that they do have a long healthy life Mm. so I think these strategies and when I say these strategies I mean the public health strategies and that's um, reformulation, so creating lower calorie foods um, and lower sugar foods, um, taxation of sugar sweetened beverages, censoring of TV advertisements, um, but also kind of removing price promotions from checkouts, yeah. and also engaging communities and schools so that they can uh, create environments for kids because it's all well and good telling them to move more but if they don't have a cycle path or they don't have a green area to to play in then they can't and we Mm. know that the kids that are most affected are those from um the kind of lower income families because Mm. those areas are more deprived from this kind of these kind of activities and things like that so it really does require a huge amount of movement from government level Um, But also it requires people like you and I to speak up from a public health point of view and say Mm. this is actually really important and this is why. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah. And there's lots of things that people can do on an individual level, but I don't agree with putting all of this whole person approach kind of individual responsibility. Mm. It is your fault that you're in this position, that you have poor health, that Mm. you're obese. Mm. Mm. When we know that obesity is a huge it's a multifactorial, it's not just caused by eating too much and moving too little. Mm. Although excess energy tends to lead to excess fat deposition, which is obesity, mm. defined by BMI, we know that it's not just food and exercise, it's also genetics. You know, it's like mm. 70% heritable. It's also your environment. It's also your so- psychosocial status. You know, f- we don't just eat because we're hungry anymore. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're eating 
we eat because it's pushed in front of us. We eat because it's advertised to us. We eat because it's a social thing. Yeah. We've got this really complex relationship with food. And I think we need to start understanding how we shape obesity. Because there is no denial saying that someone who is obese has a higher risk of all of those comorbidities that we discussed. Heart disease, type 2 diabetes, you know, insulin resistance, high cholesterol. And so in order to protect people's health, we do need to help prevent them from becoming obese in the first place. And it's those who are morbidly obese and having a BMI, um, which is, you know, we've got levels of obesity and, Mm. you know, the severe obesity. And we know that they that, you know, gives us the greatest risk of these diseases. Definitely. yeah. And that is what not only has a burden on human health, but it has a burden on our economy, mm-hmm. strains on the NHS, but we come, which we come back to time and time again. Yeah, yeah. So it's looking for solutions, but also not looking at people as just a burden and not using those words and not using mm-hmm. words like tackling and, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that you hear in the news. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's definitely a multifactorial condition, I think, that has so many different um, roots as well. It's kind of like when you examine the obesogenic environment, you're also looking at the psychogenic environment and there's so many different similarities. You are really a product of, yes, your family history, yes, your genomics, yes, what you eat, but also your environmental surroundings, mm. your level of education, where you were privileged or unprivileged to grow up as well. There was a paper actually that came out of King's College just two two weeks ago, looking at the associations, just an association, the association between low socioeconomic status and the diversity of your microbiota as well. Yeah. So there are so many different factors. To, I mean, this is before we yeah, go the into... the microbiome's another... Yeah, it's massive, yeah. absolutely huge. And then and then obviously that comes down to food systems as well and the mm. use of antibiotics, not only on personal health, but also from um, uh, an animal livestock point of view as well. Um, it's very, it, you know, it, it's... A, a hugely, hugely difficult subject. It's kind of like the topic of stress. You know, yeah. you can never really be thought of as anyone's fault for being stressed or having social isolation, but yet it still happens, and it's something that we need to address. Mm. The way we go about it shouldn't isolate. It shouldn't blame. It shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't be using those sorts of negative connotations. And the same thing with obesity. You can actually be um, a product of something that's completely out of your control. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, I think it's really important to actually incorporate that into public health strategy because that would actually lead to a lot more engagement I feel as well yeah and I think if we focus on the healthy behaviours and creating a healthier environment that's probably a more positive message because we know that people are more likely to actually engage in those behaviours if they're not stigmatised and you know like I think there was a huge debate about that campaign that came out last year from cancer research which said you know the leading cause of cancer is obesity and you had to fill in the letters and I had feedback from from even um, family members of patients who said like leaving the hospital and seeing that really wasn't helpful yeah I really didn't like that I've had a a few friends um, discussions with friends actually from oncology from public health and stuff and there's there's really mixed feelings about that some people are like very pro that like everyone needs to know but at the same time, I'm kind of at the camp like, okay, I understand what the thinking was behind it because, A, we're talking about it and now it's known that there is a link, fair enough. But actually, for from the position, from the perspective of a patient with cancer or someone who feels that they are at risk of cancer as a result of their own actions because of blame um, uh, for, for being overweight, 
it's just not helpful and it just adds to the uh the isolation the isolation the feelings of of uh being reprimanded by your own actions mm. um and it doesn't really give people a a path to follow or like direction to actually help themselves yeah so uh, you know I, it's it's a tough one that um but it's it's interesting to see how mixed uh, people's responses were to it yeah no it really is and um, you know like i always say I am not, um, you know, denying that if you are um, obese, that you do not have an increased risk of these certain conditions, particularly there's like a collection of diseases, Mm. breast cancer and things like that, that you can increase your risk of. But having um, it's it's also important to understand that BMI is is a useful measure from a population level, but it's not always int- it's not always useful on an individual level in isolation. And what I mean by that is just taking BMI and not understanding the whole picture is not useful because we know that you could be six foot and you could be full of muscle and you could be considered obese because you have a high BMI so in those instances we should be taking you know waist hip ratios we Mm. need to also understand where the fat deposition is and that's why people always say you know apple kind of shapes Mm. tend to be higher risk Mm. and that's because they have visceral fat deposition and Mm. that is the fat that is around our organs Mm. and we know that that's not inert in that it doesn't it just sits there it doesn't just sit there it's metabolically active it's a you know it's producing hormones all all the time it affects how hungry we are it affects how full we feel so having extra fat also is affecting your health because it's doing all these things on the inside that we're not really aware of it's not just about being heavier yeah exactly yeah and I think (laughs) like even when I see people in clinic you know it's at the extremes of that u-shaped curve with BMI that we need to be a flagging up but also combining that information about BMI with things like waist to hip ratio with things like their biometric tricks and uh, sorry their um uh their lab studies uh their family history uh their their current comorbidities you know there's so many different nuances to the subject it's never just going to be defined by one thing but certainly at a population level we kind of go to the lowest common denominator and that's why i think it's good to have someone like yourself in public health policy which you (laughs) hope to do in the future yeah that'll be great (laughs) yeah yeah no absolutely and i do get you know like bmi is such an easy measure Mm. it's like it's universal we use it across the world but it does have its downfalls. And the thing is, we can't, it's, we need to have these discussions and we, it's, you know, I, I think all of this research is helpful, but it's just, we need to discuss it amongst one another, different health professionals. What does this mean for the individual? And I think that's what it comes back to, you know, the World Cancer Research Fund brought, brought out their latest statement recently and they kind of like outline all of the risk factors from a lifestyle point of view and they kind of have that compared to all the different cancers and body fatness um, i.e. obesity Mm. you know comes up against a lot of the cancers but also so does smoking Mm. and physical inactivity Mm. and things like height so Mm. adult height which I was really confused by Um, so there's lots of different things that we need to take into consideration but we need to be a lot more careful with 
and just a bit more sensitive with how we phrase things. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's a great overview of public yeah. health in general. <laughs> I think we did it. <laughs> um, are there any particular resources you think the listeners should go check out? Um, certainly, I'd link to the Eat Lancet report um, for sure. I think that that'd be great, interesting read for most people. Yeah. And I think there's a website that breaks it down for the average. Uh, yeah. The average so reader. they. If you go onto the EAT website, E-A-T, they have a summary report up there, which mm. is kind of just outlines exactly what that is. And then the podcast will be coming out um, sometime in the next couple of weeks. But check out myself and Sandra's channels for that. And that will just be like a seven to eight episode podcast going through all the different core elements of the the report, which all, with all of the scientists who are on the report. So that'll be interesting. Um and other than that, I would just say, you know, like, I definitely try to put as much up on my website, which is thefoodmedic.co.uk, um, and interview people on my podcast as well. One of the episodes I would flag would be uh, Dr. Giles Yeo, who yeah. is a geneticist, particularly focusing on obesity. And he really talks about... Um, the kind of genetic basis of obesity and also the podcast episode with Dr. Zoe Williams and Dr. John Sykes talking about for GPs kind of how do we actually implement all of these campaigns uh, with our patients and I think that will be it Um, other than that I would just say to everyone who does see public health campaigns who come out or they see reports like the Eat Lancet report take it with a pinch of salt Um, these are just guidelines you know no one is forcing you to do any of this and also remember who this report is it's to help or these kind of reports are to help the majority of people so it's not to take away from anyone's life it's to add to it Always an absolute pleasure chatting to Hazel. I'm so glad she finally made it onto the podcast and you can catch her on socials at The Food Medic. Check out the website, thefoodmedic.co.uk. All the links to her socials will also be on my website, thedoctorskitchen.com. To summarise our conversation, we talked about a whole bunch of different topics, state and corporate responsibility for ensuring that people are actually offered the healthier choices things like Ocado putting top results actually being healthier choices for them like the low sugar items or more whole foods rather than the nutrient poor calorie dense options that are usually promoted to us giving the general public reasonable targets when it comes to food and what we should be aiming for expectation management is something that's very very interesting you know there is a stark difference between what we see on Instagram and what I see in clinic when I'm talking to patients and what they're plates actually look like fiber 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 we always talk about fiber in the show fiber is so important we are not hitting our guidelines of over 30 grams a day which is a crushingly low amount in my opinion but we should be at least achieving 30 grams per day you can get this from beans nuts legumes chickpeas one of my favorites one of the recipes that i find helps people hit that fiber content are my spicy chickpeas which you can have for brunch and it's very popular amongst the nursing staff in my hospital who often have it for brunch on Saturdays. Also don't forget my new book Eat to Be Illness is going to be out on the 21st of March. You can pre-order on Amazon and all good bookstores as well. Check out my website where I'm going to have lots of interesting information. Subscribe to the newsletter and give this podcast a five-star review. It really does help people get that information and it's going to be useful for so many people out there. Thanks so much and I will see you next time.
Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.